Wow, I had the best conversation with the amazing Jenny Packham. I've been a huge fan of Jenny's work for many, many years, especially after my dear sister wore one of Jenny's dresses on her wedding day. I just couldn't wait to hear more about how she's built such a beautiful brand that's endured more than three decades. I've always believed that the best products and brands come from raw emotion that is deep within us. And when speaking to Jenny, it was so clear to me that although she she designs dresses that look wonderful and are coveted the world over. For her, it is about how they make a woman feel that really matters. Such down-to-earth advice on what makes a bestseller. It was all music to my ears. This was a truly fascinating conversation and such a privilege to hear Jenny's insights and understand more about her resilience in business and what drives her to keep moving forward. And on recording the interview, she had two days to go before her book, How to Make a Dress, was published. I have it and it is a must read. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not on the High Street for my kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Dell Technologies, who've helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hello, Jenny. What a pleasure to meet you. You've dressed some of the most iconic women of our time and somebody who adores fashion. It is a dream come true to speak to you today. So welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, it's lovely to have you. And I was just before we went on air was showing you a picture of my sister who wore one of your beautiful gowns on her wedding day. And you instantly said, oh, yes, that's the Eden dress. <laughs> and then spotted her, the headpiece, which is yours as well. It must be such a joy. Do you have a lot of people doing that, pushing a wedding dress in your face and sort of asking you to recall what the name is? <laughs> well, generally, they tell me what the name was and then I'm trying to recall it. No, it's lovely. I think it's one of the nicest parts about about doing bridal wear is that you're kind of in some way in people's lives at a very joyous time and they've chosen something that they love. So, you know, it's just lovely to be involved that way and to have those wonderful compliments. Well, it was the most stunning, stunning dress. Yeah, she looks beautiful. So let's start from the beginning, um, because I read that both your grandmothers were dressmakers. And is this where the start of your love of fashion and textiles began? I think so. I mean, one of my grandmothers was the sort of local dressmaker and my other grandmother was more kind of, she used to do much more sort of creative sort of embroidery work. So I suppose the sort of combination of them both, plus the fact that my mum was always making things for herself, dresses for my dollies and everything. I suppose I, I didn't even really think about it. I just started making my own things because everyone, you know, I'd go up and see my my granny and she'd be on the machine. They were always, all of them, making stuff. So I probably just felt it was very much what I should do. And so the idea of a job called a dressmaker or dress designer, you knew about that from a young age, did you? 
Not really. I think I became, you know, once I started sort of drawing and, you know, loving that side of it. I think I was about 11 when I discovered that there was actually a job called dress designer. That was it, really. I just thought that's going to suit me. And it's also something that my brother couldn't do. Um, he had no interest in being a dress designer. <laughs> was there a competitive air in the household? No, I think there was a, for me, there was a sort of sense of acceptance that everything he did seemed to be so much better than me. So finding that job, I felt like, okay, I'm safe here. I can do this and I can have it to myself. Well, you grew up in Southampton with your parents and, as you said, your brother, Chris, and your father was an engineer and your mother was very committed to looking after the family. I heard it was a very lively household. What are your memories of that time in your life? Well, I think when you're young, you think your childhood is obviously normal because it is normal to you. But I think... As I've grown up, I, I sort of look back now and think that wasn't everybody's experience. <laughs> I mean, our house was just like a zoo. I mean, I'd come home from school and there'd be one day I came home and there was a smooth snake coming down the stairs. Oh my goodness. Tadpoles everywhere. And, you know, it was very busy. And then my mum was, you know, always being creative. So she'd be doing a bit of sculpture, a bit of painting over here, making something. And my dad, you know, he went away. He actually ran the company that he, he worked with. So he was also a businessman. So I think that's always sort of helped me actually with that side of things. So very creative. And my parents were very enthusiastic for anything that we wanted to do. You know, I spent most of my childhood driving all over the countryside looking for birds and, you know, <laughs> et cetera. Um, <laughs> so it was quite a little creative hub, actually. Stroke zoo. <laughs> the tadpoles, tell me, in water, I uh, assume. He actually fed me a couple, I think, when I was about five. <laughs> and if I, if I really concentrate, I can still feel them in my mouth, oh my sort goodness. of wiggling. And they felt like sort of peas covered in slime. <laughs> <laughs> it really does sound a wonderful household. And were you um, close to your brother? Because I know he's gone on to have a wonderful career. Yeah, we're still very close. I think I, I gave in very early on and just, you know, just thought he was marvellous and followed him around. And, you know, his enthusiasm for what he does is is so sort of um, captivating, actually. So, yeah, and I think, you know, it's helped us that we're both in very different areas, but we're very sort of similar um, in our approach, I think. So we're very close and it's, it's lovely having him in my life. If I think about that household, because I can slightly picture it, it feels like I've sort of watched it on a movie or something, you know, the bustling and the hustling and the sort of the, the energy in there. What do you think the impact was of being able to express yourself creatively from a young age has had on you? Because was it a source of comfort, maybe helped you navigate the sort of ups and downs of growing up? I think it was unusual in that there wasn't sort of a moment that was Anything that we wanted to do, it was like, okay, let's do that. Mm -hmm. Nobody sort of said, oh, not now, I'm too tired. Or I don't remember that at all, actually. And there was always, there always had to be a plan. You know, if there was, you know, <laughs> Sunday, what's the plan? Where are we going? What are we doing? And we'd all sort of go off. My mum was very strict about what time the meals were. So if we were, if I was sewing and Chris was the other side, doing a little bit of taxidermy on a doormouse or something, <laughs> you know, we had to clear the table for dinner and that was that. So... It always felt like we were doing too much really to sort of, um, to want to clear the table for dinner. But there was something sort of between us that we all always had to be kind of doing something. There was an energy. Yeah, definitely. 
we were never allowed to lay in bed or take a day off, really. Do you think this is an energy of time gone by? I'm picturing your household and then I'm picturing my 16-year-old son right now and I'm thinking, Mm. oh my goodness me, I need to get my A-game back (laughs) on. Do you think that there is? Do you think technology or the way that we live today leads to less expression of creativity when we're young? Yeah, I think looking back to that time, I'm beginning to feel that we were a very lucky generation. There were no distractions. Mm -hmm. You did get bored if you weren't doing something. And I think... You know, that meant that you had to use your imagination. You had to, you know, give yourself projects to do. And being bored wasn't really seen as acceptable. Right, yeah. And it was dull. And, you know, I think doing something was, you know, the way to sort of entertain ourselves and each other. Obviously, there's the pros and the cons. You know, there's an amazing kind of, I don't know, inspirational sort of quality to social media and the internet and everything. But at the same time, you know, living in a sort of very much what felt like a very much smaller world um, somehow let you experiment more. Yeah. You know, when I decided to be a, you know, a dress designer, if I'd have been able to go on social media and see all these other people that also wanted to do it, I think I would have been so intimidated I might have given up. Whereas I really believed I could be because there was only me and I didn't know anyone else who wanted to be a dress designer. So I thought, well, I'm okay then, I can do this. So I suppose having that protection of not knowing everything that was going on in the world, you know, helped the sort of process of getting there, I think. Yeah, gosh, that is so interesting. A smaller world. It's potentially what we're all feeling at the moment um, on a negative sort of front. But there is something to be said about that. Mm. Let's go back to you. After school, you went to art college in Southampton Mm -hmm. before then going to St. Martin's in London. And it was quite astonishing to think of the alumni of St. Martin's, Alexander McQueen, Stella McCartney, Mm -hmm. Galliano, yourself, to name a few. It's got this reputation of being notoriously hard, but it's also quite individual. Can you tell me, what do you think makes St Martin so special? Does it encourage everyone to have their own signature on what they do? Well, I mean, obviously it's changed a great deal now, but I think um, I was very lucky when I was at Southampton Art College, I learned to do all the practical stuff, sewing techniques, machining, knitwear, everything. It was a fantastic course. The thing to remember about St. Martin's is that they do pick who they want. So they are, from the beginning, picking people that they think are going to be good students, interesting, etc. When I went there, it was 1984. It was a bit of a shock to my system. Everything was very organised. You know, you had to be in at a certain time, leave at a certain time, teachers turned up on time. And then St. Martin's sort of threw me completely, actually, because it was very fluid. And sometimes we would be waiting for tutors for a long time to turn up when they were in the restaurants (laughs) in Dean Street. But I struggled quite a lot with it to start with. And they were very hard on us. And, you know, when I'm thinking I was sort of 18, you know, in London for the first time on my own, there wasn't a lot of sort of pastoral care. It was very quite hard. And a lot of people dropped out as well. But at some point during those four years, instead of doing things for your teachers, you know, to get good marks, you started really doing things for yourself because you realised that actually nobody was going to help you, but really yourself. Mm -hmm. You had to stick up for yourself. You had to argue back and you had to work hard, you know, when there weren't people watching you, you know. So it made you fiercely independent and quite determined, actually. 
And then I think by the time I got into my fourth year, I really didn't want to leave. I just was having so much fun there creatively. And I very much in touch with some of the tutors that were there at the time. They were just inspirational people. And the 80s was an amazing time. I mean, sometimes we would, I'd just be sat in a textile room working and a, you know, a film director would come in and say, does anybody want to, you know, design some costumes for this? Or my goodness, Sony would come in and buy some prints. You know, it was, people would, they, they just sort of turn up, you know, and it was, and buy stuff from us. And, you know, I did some very interesting things when I was there. I, I made costumes for people. I, I made some um, film, designed film costumes, all sorts of things, you know, um, sold prints. So by the time you left, you were kind of engaged in working anyway. I loved when researching you that you said one day in one of your, your history of fashion lectures, <laughs> you were sat in the front row and you turned around to find out that the class of 30, well, um, that you were the only one awake and the lecture was so passionate, <laughs> but you were the geek at the front. <laughs> it was so funny. Uh, I mean, I, I may have been struggling, but I was such a Goody, goody. And um, <laughs> I was finding it really fascinating. I, little did I know that I was the only one listening. I just turned around and they weren't just asleep. They were laid down. Oh my on the, goodness. On the, on the benches asleep. Potentially a heavy night the night before. Yeah, but you know, there was a funny thing there. They used to kind of, underlying it all, they really sort of approved of you having that kind of life. You know, they really wanted you to be immersed right. into, you know, sort of the culture of the time. Yeah. Um, which I think is, as a designer or an artist, it is obviously very important. But you graduated at 23 and you immediately launched your brand. And along with your partner, Matthew, now, of course, your husband, who also graduated from St. Martin's, and you set up your first studio under the Westway at Portobello. Did you have a very clear vision of what you wanted to create right from the start? Because you were very young and I know that you initially went into evening wear as your brand. Well, actually, when I was at Southampton, I'd already started doing evening wear oh, and really? sort of special occasion. Yeah, I just, I've never been interested in making day wear, I suppose. I always have wanted to make something that's kind of special. And also, I because I came from a sort of textile you know, I, I was very interested in sort of textile and I felt with evening wear, I could create my own textiles. I could sort of, I wanted to own the whole garment. So it wasn't just about right. buying some fabulous fabric and making it into a dress. I wanted to make the fabulous fabric. So I would embroider it, you know, dye it, do all the different things. So I think by the time I finished, I think what I'm very thankful to myself um, is that I decided to do something that was quite niche mm -hmm. and really concentrate on it. And even at St. Martin's, if you said you were going to do evening wear, you know, it wasn't the coolest thing to do. You know, day wear was really where you wanted to be, much more cutting edge. So right. I obviously decided that was the thing and I was definitely very sort of set on it. So, but when Matthew and I got the studio, we got a studio in Portobello Road, just underneath the Westway. We didn't actually know what we were going to do in it. We just <laughs> wanted to be, have a creative life together, really. So we just got the studio and then I said, well, why don't we just do an evening wear range and show it at London Fashion Week? That was it. We did. I love that. It's such a grand vision for yourself. But tell me, it can't have been that grand right from the beginning. I mean, no. what were they like? <laughs> what were the hours like? And, you know, that starting moment. Can you go back to that sort of day in the life would be in those beginning blocks of your business? Well, yeah. I mean, it was it was Matthew and I doing everything. 
And we, the first collection we did was about 12 pieces. I mean, looking back, it is quite extraordinary to me that we went straight into, you know, not only evening wear, but kind of top end luxury yes. evening wear, top end, you know. So we really wanted to buy lovely fabrics and they were quite high prices. So we went straight in almost where, you know, we, we still are now, really. And within, I think within two years, we were in Saks, Neiman Marcus, Bergdorf Goodman, you know, with those dresses hanging next to much, much bigger designers, which, you know, looking back now was quite an accomplishment. <laughs> Financially, it was something else. Obviously, we had no money when we started at all. And I think working in West London, there were quite a few sort of loans and things we've got. We also got the Prince's Trust loan. So it was just kind of getting little bits of money from here and there and working with the bank. But yeah, it was rocky. It was very rocky. And we, we really didn't earn any money for quite a, a long time. Um, but I think because we were, we were so in love and we yes. were so happy to be being creative together and building something that was entirely our own. Um, and I, I suppose also I recognized in myself that I didn't like being told what to do. Mm -hmm. um, I really wanted to design whatever I wanted. And there's something, isn't there, would you agree with this, that naivety plays a huge role in this because it's actually quite a beautiful thing. I think naivety gets such a hard rap as a word mm. because there's something incredible about, you know, I think back to my early days of not on the high street and if anyone had told us, you know, we were one of the first marketplaces in the world and basically you'd instantly think technology and we weren't from a techie background, you know. So we were totally naive to what we were getting into, but we had a belief in something. Was it that way for you as well? Yeah, I wrote about this in the in the book, actually. I think there is something beautiful about a mixture of naivety and mm -hmm. arrogance, mm. you know, youthful arrogance. You know, you can go a long way on that. And you shouldn't listen to other people at that yes. time. You know, take what you need, but you've got to do it your own way. And I think you've got to make those mistakes and you've got to learn by them very quickly, obviously. Also that generation, you know, my brother was a real sort of punk and I'd listened to all that music growing up. And there was a sort of a, you know, real sort of energy of this is our world and we can do this. And it doesn't matter. You know, I grew up watching people on top yeah. of the pops that couldn't <laughs> sing, you know. <laughs> so, you know, you could do anything you wanted. And I, you know, I, I feel now that that is sort of slightly lost in our generation. Yes. The, the gen, you know, of our kids. We were underneath the Westway. The traffic was sort of, you know, going over the top of us and it was quite cold. Often I was cutting dresses out with gloves on, et cetera, but mm. it's okay because we're going to get where we want to get. You know, we'd have lots of people. We had lots of advisors because they were, you know, whenever you got a loan, you'd have to get an advisor and we'd just sit there and listen to them. And, you know, you take a few little bits and then you'd have to, you'd have to take risk that they would be uncomfortable with because they were grown ups and mm. they didn't want to take risk anymore, but we didn't have anything to lose. You know, we didn't have um, any assets. We didn't have any sort of property. Yes. You know, we, we just could get on with it and take those risks. I was um, interviewing Johnny Bowden and he said that one of the things he says to young people mm. who talk to him, it's like, go for it now before you have 
anything around your neck, you know, before yes. you have children, mortgages and yeah. things, this is the time where you're free. Mm. You know, the, the least load that you have on you, the freer you are to experiment and take risks. And that's always, it's always um, stuck with me. And and I suppose what you're, to your point about nowadays, how can you almost be naive? I know this sounds ridiculous, but when you have the internet and you have social media and things like that, mm. you sort of could look up anything, can't you? You can't sort of find your own way by the very nature that we're online all the time, mm. that actually you can just Google your industry and every single person before you and other people in front of you are there. So it is a very difficult thing to ha sort of keep that purity of naivety. I, I can't even relate to, you know, obviously someone starting up a business now, I mean, the way, it, mm. you know, comparing how we set up our business, but there was something about sort of having tunnel vision about it. Um, and yeah, I mean, if one of my daughters said to me after they'd been going out with someone for three months, right, I'm going into business with him and here's my letterhead and, you know, all the rest of it, <laughs> I admit I would be going, oh my God, that's a bit quick. <laughs> yes. I mean, I have to say my parents were incredibly cool about it and, you know, they always sort of helped us with everything that we did. But there was no stopping us, you mm. know, it was, it wasn't even, no one could have talked any sense to us. And I think, you know, when I'm asked, you know, by people, you know, what, what would you say to a young designer? I think I have to bring it down to the most sort of basic level, which is, you know, don't ever give up, just keep going, find a way. If you are a creative person, you want to, you know, have your own company, you know, you're going to have to go through some real ups and downs because, you know, this business has lots of fluctuations mm. anyway. And if you're, you know, just getting going, I mean, in one way, I think they're lucky now to have the internet. You know, they can take pictures of their garments. They can put them up. They can send them out to people. You know, we would be driving around all night posting through little bits of paper through day with the address <laughs> on it to all the press in London. You know, I'd be following the buyers around London Fashion Week putting my model in front of them. It's a different world, isn't it? It was different, but it was, ultimately it was the same. Yes. You know, yes. it was just getting in front of people and showing them what you do. Well, at the time, I think people like to discover fashion as well. You know, the press, the buyers, they like to be the first one to discover something. So I suppose now it's just different channels of getting to that. And talking about putting yourself in front of people, is that what you did to find your first stockists? Did you literally door knock? Well, we were very lucky. There was, um, at the time, there were sort of two shop windows. They were like the influencers of the time. I made an appointment with one of them. I turned up. Next thing I knew, I'm stood in the middle of, you know, the shop, dressed up in our dresses, which was quite <laughs> funny because they were like little tutus and I had my DMs on and everything. And anyway... She said, look, I'm not going to buy it, but I'll put it in the window for a week. Yeah, it was called Lucienne Phillips's shop. It was on Knightsbridge. At the same time, not long after we were in Brown's window, that was kind of um, a way of getting everyone to know that someone was sort of saying, this is good. Right. Um, so they were very fortunate moments, actually. Which seems so strange now, doesn't it? Just having a shop window. You know, as you said, the influences your time. But you mentioned in your past that actually what you wanted to do was create something that was niche, that you wanted to excel at it, which was not easy when you do pick a sort of narrower road to go down. Do you think it's the obsession to detail that's the key ingredient? for your success or is it doing something so well with a sort of laser focus 
in on that industry that you can start to get known for it rather than picking a bigger lane, so to speak? Well, I think at the time, evening was probably a much less competitive area to be in. Hence the fact that we were in those extraordinary sort of shops within sort of two years, really. It's also something that we could sell internationally because at the time the UK was very well known for very good evening wear, actually. So the buyers would come to London to buy it. I think being niche, being able to concentrate and like you say, get into the detail of it and just improve, improve, improve on what you do. But also have a product that is internationally desired has also meant that sometimes when, you know, different areas of the world are going through different problems, yes, we've been able to keep going because we've, you know, perhaps swung our attentions to an area that's sort of doing better. So that that's also given us a sort of advantage, but also I think special occasion, whatever is going on. I mean, even now in the pandemic, you know, I mean, I'm I've been quite sort of taken back by sort of how much we have still sold. And it's because people always have events. They're always looking forward to them. So they're not happening now, but they're they're buying them for later because they want something to look forward to. And yes. this has been, you know, the hardest period, I would say, for evening and bridal wear. But generally, you know, whatever's going on in the world, people want to find that time to celebrate life and to to keep going. We're working with our partners at Dell Technologies to empower small businesses across the UK with the tools and knowledge they need to thrive. So every week we bring you the Small Business Pharmacy Live to help you navigate your business journey, covering a whole range of topics, including how to maximise your Instagram engagement. And here I am talking to Lindy Mangaza of Explode Social Media, who lets us into a little secret about a fascinating Instagram algorithm. Hearts of growth are the first 30 minutes of engagement the most important. I had a post randomly reach almost 40,000 in a few days versus others that were about 200 people. What influences this? Very good question. I'll let you all into a little secret. Instagram is very clever. And what they want you to do is be on their platform constantly. And they want other people to be on their platform constantly. If you do a post and you close Instagram and you don't go onto Instagram for an hour and a half, Instagram will push that post up to the top of Instagram and you'll get more likes and engagement on that post because they want you to come back on Instagram and have a look. It's an algorithm, but it's a very clever one. If people, if you put content up and within the first 30 seconds there is loads of response to it, Instagram thinks, this is great content. Let me show it to more people. So that's the way it works. So you've got to get your friends, family, dogs, cats, yes. everybody doing it. <laughs> nan's, cousins, thing. brother, the next Everyone. I've just posted everyone, everyone likes. <laughs> yeah, just don't go into it for an hour and you'll see that it gets more engagement because they want you back. For the latest lessons, advice and insights, join me every Wednesday at midday live on my Instagram as we tackle a different area of business. With a continued commitment to empower you, Dell are giving away a tech in a box every week. For a chance to win a brand new XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies, head to holly.co, where you'll also find loads of tangible advice on everything from marketing to brand and HR, all thanks to Dell. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. 
your beautiful gowns are so feminine, so beautifully crafted, as I was lucky enough to see my sister in her dress and she just was mind-blowingly beautiful. They've been worn by celebrities, A-listers, you've been featured in films, television shows. I mean, a Bond girl has worn your dresses as well as the Two Bond girls. Two Bond girls, there you go. I mean, not many people can say that, Jenny, as well as the Duchess of Cambridge. There's something very special about what you do, but also about how you make women feel. How important is that to you when designing? And almost on that commercial level, there's something that you need to tap into. It is how someone, it feels like the best version of themselves, which must be good for business. You can't make a science of of what we do, yep. really. And I, I think other people within our industry try and make a science of it. And that's when it all starts going a bit wrong. You know, when we first started working with, say, like the American buyers, they would start telling me what to design. But then when you gave it to them, they didn't want it. And that was a real learning curve for me. It's like, okay, listen to them, but you've still got to listen to yourself. Especially the wedding dresses. I have to design with my heart. I have to make someone fall in love with that dress. Yes. They're going to choose one dress in their life, hopefully. And they have to fall in love with it. And when they put it on, quite often they cry mm. <laughs> because they it's kind of like they've met their dress, you know, which perhaps they've thought about for many years. It's very strange. Like sometimes, you know, a dress will come in from the factory and we'll all be stood there and we'll unwrap it, um, which is always a bit of an exciting moment. And we all stand there and we go, yeah, well, that's a bestseller. Really? It's very interesting. You look at it and think, why? Why is that a bestseller? Why? And it's because everything's just fallen into place. The beading works, the shape worked, colour is great. You know, it doesn't happen that often, actually, that you get one of those dresses where you just immediately know everybody is going to want that dress, mm -hmm. you know. There's so many sort of opportunities for it not to work out. Um, so when it all comes together, it is a really satisfying moment. Just picking up when you say... That's a bestseller. Now, I understand exactly what you mean. And I also love this line. I've written it down here. You can't make a science out of this. And I know everyone listening right now is nodding their head. It's very difficult because what you want to say is, okay, this is a bestseller. Now let's try and take the components. And many, many gentlemen, I'm sure you've had some in your organization as well, who literally get out the Excel spreadsheet and say, what makes a bestseller? I literally want to have the secret formula. And I used to say to these people, it's just magic. And their brains could not compute it. How how have you sort of navigated this? Because I'm sure you're sort of laughing here because I know you know exactly what I mean. Yes, yes. Yeah, I've had lots of experiences, obviously. I mean, I have to say that, you know, Matthew and I still own the company. It's still independent. And ultimately, that's one of the reasons, you know, because I think especially if you get a partner that is not from a creative background, they don't understand the process. I'm not being critical, but they, they don't. And then also it becomes for them a more of a sort of, okay, how are we going to sell more? Mm -hmm. Let's kind of break it all down into sort of, you know, V-necks, long sleeves, et cetera, et cetera. It never works like that. Maybe you'll have a sales team and they say, look, we don't sell green, Jenny. But they didn't sell green last season because maybe that green wasn't quite right mm -hmm. or the dress that was green wasn't quite right. The next season, maybe we sell green really well because the combination of, you know, the dress and the color works. 
I'd love to make a science of it. <laughs> wouldn't I mean, we? You know, wouldn't we? <laughs> yeah. Often, you know, I sit down and I'm about to, you know, sketch the next collection. And I've got all the inspiration. Everything is all sorted. And I've done the range plan. I know what's needed. And then I sit down and I draw something completely and utterly different. And it just goes off in a different direction. But you've got to know that, you know, that's how it should go. I mean, when I was writing the book, it was the same. I, I'd plan every chapter. You know, I knew what I was going to do. And then I'd sit down and just type something completely different. You know, that isn't to sort of diminish the importance of doing that research or planning. That all plays a part in it. But you've also, that's the bit you can't explain. It sort of it channels through you and, and something different comes out. And that's the important bit. Almost you sound slightly rebellious there. And I've got to say, I think that's another thing I've noticed with very successful creative entrepreneurs and founders is, do you know what I mean? The conformity does not fit them. And so by very nature, they slightly rebel from it, which actually creates their genius. You go your own path, you do something different. And I think that that is what the genius certainly of your brand is and, and what you're describing there. I know you got a lot of inspiration from going to museums, picking up colours. I know that artists really inspire you. And 1930s Hollywood glamour. Tell me about that, because I know that was something that really has inspired you forever. You know, that period of time was unique. Uh, I mean, first of all, it sort of broke with everything that had gone before. I think, you know, people were coming out of the depression. I suppose our sort of maybe naive impression of it was a, that it was a sort of time to party. Mm -hmm. The creative work in that, you know, that era is just stands up today as looking, there doesn't even seem anything kind of um, dated about it. It's just extraordinary. And I think for me, it really eclipsed that sort of amazing sort of femininity and elegance and sort of with a bit of decadence and freedom. You know, I think hundreds of years of women kind of constricting themselves into things. Suddenly this sort of, you know, dresses that are cut on the bias in satin and it just the, the freedom of it just is so illuminating. Gosh, so beautiful. It makes me want to go and sit and get a packet of biscuits and watch a movie right in the second. <laughs> uh, tell me, what advice would you have for founders listening or dreamers who are listening of, of founding businesses of creating a brand that stands the test of time? You know, you have to move, don't you, through the eras of fashion, even though I'm sure, you know, you're not following any trend. But what would you say would be a piece of advice? Well, I think from a, a business point of view, it's, um, I think it's a fight. I think you've also got to understand that if you start feeling in fashion, this is, you know, I can only speak for that. But the minute you start feeling comfortable, you've got to make it uncomfortable. Right. And like you say, you know, that's perhaps a rebellious spirit. Whereas, you know, if everybody starts buying a particular shape and doing very well, um, all your shops are doing really well and they just want more of it, you've got to know that that's going to stop at some point because women always want something other people don't mm. have. They want it for a bit. We all want the latest thing, but then we suddenly think, oh, I don't want that anymore. I'm bored of that. I'll have something else. So you have to try and be one step ahead. Yeah, my advice is make yourself uncomfortable. Design something different when in fact, you know, it feels at the time that everybody wants the same thing as last season mm. and, you know, sort of push yourself. I mean, I'm very lucky. I, you know, I feel like every time I finish a season, I think to myself, even after this many seasons, I still think, okay, the next one's going to be better. I'm, I'm going to try <laughs> harder. It's going to be fantastic. And the next season is going to be fantastic. And I think 
you know, I'm very lucky that I still feel like that after all these years. And if you don't feel like that, you've got a problem. Yes. Uh, the passion is still ignited in you. I can hear it. And I couldn't agree with you more. Tell me about opening Elizabeth Street, the shop, because you had a very successful brand. Why was opening a physical space important to you? Well, we, we didn't do it for a very long time. And Matthew and I had gone down to Elizabeth Street and we were sat in the cafe opposite and we literally looked out the window and saw this shop that was up for up for rent. We hadn't actually really thought about getting a shop then. And we just looked at it and we said, that's that's nice. <laughs> should we should we get that shop? Um, so we did. I have to say that that's kind of how Matthew and I roll, really. We, we kind of like things that come our way. We like the magic of that, you know, like finding something and it suddenly feels, yeah, that's exactly what we should do. Uh, yeah, it was a beautiful shop. We moved actually the Bridalware to our other shop in Mount Street a couple of years ago. But I've enjoyed Bridal because I think when we went into it, we really transformed it. And I'm very proud of that. I think at the time it was all strapless, big dresses. And we bought in the dress like your sister wore, Eden, you know, a much softer feminine look. And that really sort of took off. So opening the shop just after that was brilliant. You said um, in an interview I read that you don't like the idea of a world without shops. <laughs> that just so simple, but so, so true. You know, I was reading this weekend in the papers about Amazon's first shop in the UK. I'd, I'd seen it in America with no people in it, you know, and 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 it, and it's literally coming to us, you know, our high street soon. Holly and Co, you know, I had a shop, I did a shop. Gosh, it's not easy, but there's something that you can't describe about it. The energy it brings, what it mm. brings the community, how you, there's something about what it does to a brand as well that, again, I feel is very, very unique. Are you worried about what's happening with our high streets at the moment? And if you, like I, believe in shops, and I can imagine believe in independent shops, mm. what, what do you think is going to happen? Well, it's very interesting. I, I mean, I live up in Hampstead and during the time of lockdown, there's been little pockets of a return to a kind of small high street. Mm -hmm. You know, there's an area near my studio. Suddenly there's a, you know, there's a butcher's, there's a fishmonger's, there's a little kind of grocery store. And suddenly there's this lovely community and they're fantastic sort of quite trendy kind of stores. And everybody's going there to do all their, you know, um, mm -hmm. food shopping. You know, I think the high streets have, you know, the rents have been so high mm. that they haven't really allowed new designers to have the shop experience. You know, perhaps that's going to change now and we're going to see sort of new stores opening. I mean, I'm not very interested in living in a world without shops, you know. I mean, it is a social thing. You know, we that's the way women kind of, we go shopping, we have a coffee, mm. you know, the wedding dress. I mean, girls want that experience of coming in with their family, trying dresses on. I'm quite confident in it. I think there is a way that online and shops can exist together. We just have to wait and see. I mean, we're all getting much better now at ordering online. Yes, yes. <laughs> I certainly <Yes>. am. <laughs> and I, I buy things online that are quite different to things that I would buy if I went shopping. Yes. Quite interestingly enough. I can't believe we really want that. I, I think we love the shopping experience. I live in Richmond, well, near Richmond, and I heard from the local councillor there's 34 shops in Richmond that are now empty. 34, when you looked at the rents that they were charging, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds mm. of thousands per year, someone has got to stop greedy landlords. You know, I've heard so many of the people that uh, you will know as well talk about 
the landlords in this day and age, you know, through this period of time of lockdown, you know, who have not given rate relief at all, you know, who are charging full rent when all the shops are shut. So I'm so praying that you're right, that the resurgence of independence can come through. But I think we're going to have to do something about that. I think something has to happen with the laws around landlords. You know, I think in in France, they're only allowed to put the rents up by a certain percentage um, each year. You know, it's a universal percentage that they can apply. Whereas here, you know, they can do when you come to a sort of uh, break clause or, you know, a rent review, you know, they can do whatever they like. And if you don't agree with it, you have to argue a point through law. It isn't sustainable. It's just greedy and it isn't applicable to today's world. But they have, you know, our our landlord in Mount Street has been exceptional. But I've heard so many stories, you know, of, of other people that just given no leniency whatsoever. Yeah, it's it's impossible for them almost to survive. So fingers mm. crossed we're coming out of this world that we've lived in. And just talking of that, you know, last year with COVID, it's been such a devastating time for retail and the wedding industry. And it was actually, mm. as I mentioned to you before, I was a lockdown bride. I was a lucky one. So many weddings have been cancelled. I see these Instagram posts of brides, you know, the fourth wedding that they've had to cancel. And when you think about weddings contributing nearly 15 billion pounds, you know, a year, Mm. how has this time Mm. been for you? It must have impacted your business. Yeah. I mean, you know, the bridal's the thing that's been hit the hardest, definitely. Like you say, throughout the industry from, you know, florists to venues, every aspect, I think this, you know, rearranging time after time because people have, you know, they really want to get married. They've seen a bit of a space. They think it'll all be okay by then. And they've booked everything up again. I mean, all I can really say is that, you know, I hope that lots of people involved in the wedding business have been able to sort of shut down, cut their costs, do everything they can and get through this because it will come back. And, you know, I think for the girls, I think those weddings are going to be much more special because I think now that idea of being with people is so, yes. I don't know, just to be in a room with a group of, you know, the people that you love, you know, when we've all been cut off from the people that we love will be heavenly. I couldn't agree more. And and I, I heard that you said in all the years that this is the biggest challenge that you faced in 32 years since mm. you launched the label. Yeah. Is that what you've done? You know, you just basically bunker down you know, you do what it takes. And as you said, you just know that it will come back. People will always want to be getting married and potentially there'll be a surge. Yeah, I think it's been, it has been a challenge, but I think we're kind of lucky that we've been in business long enough to recognise when you have to act very quickly. Right. So I think for us, we did, we missed one season with our evening wear collection and we resold it the following season. With the bridal wear, we did show a new collection just before the second lockdown. (laughs) So (laughs) nobody's really been able to see that collection. But I think what was important was to keep doing something and to make sure that you're in people's minds so that, you know, when we come out of this, they, they think of us. We also gave a discount to... National Health Service employees. So, you know, we've seen a a great response to that and that will go on, I should imagine, all the way through this year. Um, So just doing what we can, you know, hanging in there with the business. Hanging in there, yes. But being very sensible and business-like about it, you know, things that you can't do, cutting your costs as much as possible. Like we say, just, just waiting until it comes back. We have been really lucky to have sort of 
other projects that have come along that have kept us very busy. So we're going to get through this. And when you talk about new projects, I'm actually looking at one of your projects because we were talking before we started recording um, that we share a publisher. And even though I had ordered your book on pre-order, I had this wonderful moment where I slightly had a bit of a peacock moment that someone thought I was an author because I got (laughs) your book from our publishers as if, you know, I was important enough to receive your book. Um, And it's called How to Make a Dress. And it is a memoir of your career. It asks how clothes can help shape our personal identity and our culture. What was this experience like for you? Oh, I loved it. And it was, um, I think it was something that, you know, it was a very good time for me to to do it. I started it about two years ago. I'd never written anything as long as that. It was uh, quite a challenge. I don't know. There was something wonderful about going through all the memories and putting in the anecdotes and at the same time, answering some of the questions that people have asked me over the years, like, where do you get your inspiration from? How do you get a dress on the red carpet? Mm. How do you work with your partner? Yeah. <laughs> that little one. So I, I think, you know, I kind of broke it down into the sort of format of how to make a dress from sort of sketch to red carpet and after show party. And then within each chapter, kind of putting a mixture of memoir and kind of practical stuff and I I found it quite magical. It was very hard work. I I was writing it on trains and planes and sometimes in meetings. (laughs) (laughs) Were you a bit addicted to it once you got started? I'm sure you understand. There's the excitement of the beginning and then there's the sort of, there's bits that seem sort of tougher than other and different chapters were more difficult. By the end of it, it was like, oh, that's it. I can't write another word. But yeah, I'm I'm really pleased with it. It's a very beautiful book as well. Oh, the cover. You know, the, the cover is gorgeous, lovely photographs. And I wanted it to be something, you know, hopefully it's quite humorous as well. I wanted it to be just an enjoyable insight into the creative mind, really, and the life that I've had. It feels like a perfect Sunday, pull a knitted blanket around you, cup of tea, have a girl time, you know, little girl time. It just, it's one of those books that I'm longing for that moment, Jenny. I'm planning it. That's it. It's sitting here. (laughs) I cannot wait. We're coming towards the end of this interview. And I just wanted to ask, you know, let's imagine ourselves out of lockdown you know, the sun is shining. What are your future plans? Because it doesn't feel like after three decades of doing this that you're slowing down, nor have you lost your, and which is really encouraging, by the way, for another female founder like myself mm-hmm. listening to you, you know, that you're still at it. You're still passionate. You're still rebellious. Tell me about what those thoughts are for the future. I'm not very fond of saying sort of, you know, what marvellous things have come out of this period because it's been such a, you know, tragic time for for everyone. But for me, creatively, it's kind of the noise sort of stopped a bit for a while. I was able to sort of get right back into what I love doing most, which is the actual designing, the putting the collection together. You know, I didn't have meetings and I wasn't mm. traveling. I mean, I I'd usually travel so much. It was great for me to have that time and for Matthew and I to sort of really have time as well to think about the future and what we actually want to achieve going forward. So I don't know. I'm quite excited about coming out of this, obviously, (laughs) like everybody is. And also, even from the point of view of dressing, I don't know about you, but I really want to dress up. Yes. I really want to wear colours. I want to sort of celebrate being able to sort of dress up and get out. I mean, things are going to feel 
special, yeah. aren't they? You know, when you meet people, you go to dinner parties or you have any kind of event, I feel like there's going to be a sort of real passion for letting go a bit and sort of mm. enjoying all those sort of smaller things like dressing. And I think that's one of the, you know, the things I've expressed in the book is that what we wear is a way for us to express ourselves. So therefore coming out of this, I should imagine we're going to see quite a change in not only general fashion, but the bridal wear is really going to change because I think the event will be more about people being together than the dress. And therefore the dress might become a little bit more playful. You know, usually girls are so worried about, you know, how it's going to look in photographs in 25 years time. But the fact is it's always going to look dated, mm. but maybe there'll be a little bit more about living in the moment and not yes. worrying about that so much. Oh, I love that idea. We're not going to take things for granted and maybe we're going to be freer. One of the questions I'm asked the most is, am I able to provide mentoring? So I decided to write a book that does just that. It's called Do What You Love, Love What You Do. Throughout it, you can think of me as your virtual mentor, guiding you along your journey as if I was sitting right next to you, holding your hand, recounting my own fears, failures and lessons to help you succeed on your own path. I spent lockdown 2020 writing the ultimate small business Bible and wrote from the heart with your color and creativity in mind. Whether you're at the very start of your journey or 20 years in, this is a business book like no other and it's written for you. From money fears to sharing my biggest mistakes so you don't have to, alongside my ultimate guide to brand and how to listen to your gut instinct. Do What You Love, Love What You Do is packed full of tangible advice alongside colour and creativity. And in a world first, its very own product collection. Do What You Love, Love What You Do is out on the 6th of May. Head to holly.co slash book to pre-order your copy now. all of my interviews with the analogy that running your own business is like being on one hell of a roller coaster. What would you say? I mean, your cart would obviously be exquisite and you would be wearing something glorious in it. But while that cart is traveling to the lowest point of the roller coaster, what would you say has been the lowest moment so far? Oh, what's been the lowest moment? I think really in those early days when you've, you know, you've taken on huge overdrafts and people aren't paying you because you're young and new mm. and they don't have to because they might not even have to buy you next season. They'd rather just walk away with owing you money. Yeah. I think, you know, those, those moments when you know how far you've got to climb and you've got to get yourself out of that place. Where you hold your breath for the next moment in a way. You just have to fight. You just have to be really quite angry about it and say, right, we're going to get out of here. How do we do it? And you have to work harder and you have to, you know, find a way to convince people to be on your side. You have to go and see the bank manager and really sell yourself and say, we're going to come out of this. So I suppose, yeah, those early days where we got to a few points where it was just like, what the hell are we doing here? What is this about? This is too difficult. And, you know, I remember once we went to the, this was probably one of the lowest moments. We'd actually borrowed 50,000 pounds from the bank. We'd made all the production and we'd paid it all back. And we went to see the bank manager and we said, look, we paid all the money back. And he said, okay, I can't give you any more now. And the lesson from that is never pay it all back. <laughs> <laughs> 
because if you pay it all back, you've got no leverage. So, you know, and we just sat there like, but we've we've just done a good thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's where naivety does work against you sometimes. Yes. That's and right. Jenny, conversely, wind in your hair, a beautiful Jenny Packham clip in your hair, of course. What would be your <laughs> greatest high? Oh, I've had so many. You know, I think one of your questions at the end of this is, you know, do you have any regrets? And I I don't. I mean, I've I've met and dressed some of the most amazing women, which is, you know, thinking about myself sitting in Southampton on my bed, wanting to be a dress designer, and then finding myself mm. in LA, you know, meeting stars and just incredible. I have no regrets about my life at all. I've had amazing highs and I've had so many of them. I, I you know, a fashion show, you know, that moment before the models just go on, that moment... <gasps> you know, the music starts and it's just like... I've got tingles, oh my God, just you saying that. <laughs> you know, and they all line up and they all just look amazing. There's that perfect moment where nobody's criticised the collection yet or said anything, but it all looks amazing. And that's a fabulous moment. So, so many. But then also I, I loved it when, you know, Matthew and I would be driving off to King's Cross to find a bit of editorial that was coming out in one of the Sunday papers and you know, then we'd rush off down and have a bagel in the middle of the night thinking it was just the best thing ever, you know. <laughs> so special, so special. This has just been a wonderful start to my day and thank you so much for spending the time and you've been so honest and for someone who's got a brand such as yourself, you've been so giving in this interview and, and I can't thank you enough. There's going to be so many people that benefit. So Thank you from behalf of myself and this community. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. What um, I'm going to ask now is at that point of the podcast where I'm going to hand over to you to read a letter to your younger self. And I don't know what it's going to say. I'm going to take my glasses off and, and, and slightly <laughs> hand over the microphone to you. Okay, thank you. Right. Okay, well, I'm imagining myself, I think probably about... 10, actually. Dear little Jenny, I was thinking about that record you play continuously, Tina the Ballerina. It's the story of the young girl who goes to see a ballet at the theatre with her brother. And just before it's about to begin, a man comes on stage and tells the audience that unfortunately, the star ballerina is unable to dance that night. Then Tina jumps up from her seat and says, I can dance. I can do it. Well, you don't know it yet, but this is going to be the story of your life, saying yes to things that you have really no idea whether you can do. Inevitably, you will have a lot of failures, and often you may feel very humiliated and silly, but that's okay. You will learn quickly your strengths and weaknesses and begin to tailor your dreams so that they may have wings to fly. So firstly, I wanted to tell you how very brave I think you are. Thank you for never giving up. You'll be worth it in the end. Just keep saying yes. But now I'm going to give you some very important advice. Please stop trying to make everybody happy. You do sometimes take the edge off their pain, it's true, but it's only ever a temporary solution. And so you will find yourself doing it over and over again while shaping yourself to please them. No one gave you that job. You must care, love and support. But remember, look after your own happiness too and stop worrying. People can look after themselves, just like you do. Your brother has Asperger's syndrome, but no one mentioned this term for decades. So don't worry about naming it for now. You will just think he is very clever and enthusiastic about things and knowing about his condition won't make any difference to the way you love him. You will always protect and support him, 
but understanding his challenges may help you navigate his moods and not feel so hurt sometimes. So when you tell him what you need from him, be clear and strong, don't hint. For him, things are either black or white. He will appreciate this. He loves honesty and clarity. Also, when he sits you on a chair in the kitchen and squirts English mustard up your nose, or when he locks you in the family car until you have learned to recognise all the birds of the British Isles, just scream. You must have boundaries, and don't worry, he will always be there for you too. Also, don't bother joining gyms or hiring rowing machines. Your enthusiasm for physical exercise wanes quickly. So save yourself hundreds of pounds and do something else. Get into meditation. You're quite good at that. The day you meet Matthew, your partner, will be the best day of your life, but you won't know it at the time. Trust in him. He will make your dreams come true and never let you down. It won't always be easy, and on some days you will feel like you are holding hands on a cliff edge, the wind behind you. But love and true grit will save you. And then you will have your beautiful daughters, the most important thing you will ever do together. Enjoy them and don't worry about taking them to so many museums and far off places. Stay home, relax. They can do that later, when and if they want to. And Jenny, one last thing. Life is short. You are exceptionally privileged to be a creative person. There will never be a dull moment. So burn brightly, be kind and smile. <laughs> Gosh. Oh my goodness. Just so beautiful, just so beautiful. And I just love that you spoke about your younger, younger self there, because I do think of that little girl in your household of creativity. If she could see you now, Jenny, to the empire that you have built, creating so many beautiful gowns and making people feel so full of who they are you know you're in the archives of people's hearts and families and um and I speak that from personal experience and I just want to say thank you so much for being a role model for so many of us that was a truly beautiful letter thank you very much before you go don't forget to head to holly.co to be in with a chance of winning a brand new Dell Technologies XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies and if you've enjoyed this episode if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you would you mind rating and reviewing your support means the world to me it really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love and if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.